praise be to god and uh, good morning to everyone ben can you hear me yeah okay so today's topic is the rapture our blessed hope the rapture our blessed hope now there are several ways of doing this and obviously it's tough to do a topic like this in 45 minutes as you would realize but i'll try my best to condense much <coughs> into 45 minutes uh there is going to be a little technical details in this <coughs> so i urge you to bear with me please even as i uh, uh take you through this but it is necessary for us to understand some of this uh to be able to affirm what we as a church believe all right so let me begin with some introductory comments here there is a new testament scholar from dallas seminary uh and his name is ed komocheski ed komocheski works with dan wallace who is one of the finest uh greek scholars in the world today and ed komocheski uh recently went through a very harrowing experience his 17 year old daughter emily all of a sudden passed away her heart stopped all of a sudden and she was in the hospital for a couple of days and she went to be with the lord and as ed and shelly his wife they shared the story it was a story that was full of grief and yet it was mixed with hope a story full of grief to be sure and yet was it was mixed with hope and i want to show you a picture of emily's casket and what her father ed wrote on the casket this is the casket and i want you to concentrate on this part please where her dad wrote these words and i'm sure these are the hardest and yet the most hopeful words that her dad had ever penned he says baby girl i'll meet you in the place that christ's mercy leads baby girl i'll meet you in the place that christ's mercy leads love eternally dad hope hope one of the most beautiful blessings of the christian faith but people misunderstand what hope is because most people think of hope as wishful thinking i hope it doesn't rain tomorrow i hope india wins the test match that it's playing against sri lanka it will but we say i hope it does i hope i get to make a good pizza tomorrow and things like that but that's not what the bible means when we talk about hope or when the bible talks about hope the biblical definition of hope is confident expectation confident expectation we confidently expect something because we trust the very character of god the unchanging character of god so hope is a firm assurance regarding the things that are unclear to us now and often unknown to us as well <clears throat> hope is a fundamental component of the life of the righteous without hope life loses meaning especially the christian life now whenever the new testament writers talk about hope they always connect hope to eschatology the second coming of the lord jesus christ hear me please whenever the new testament writers especially talk about hope they always connect hope to eschatology which is the second coming of the lord jesus christ let me give you a few verses here look at what the new testament writers are doing especially paul titus 2:13 while we wait for the blessed hope 
the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In the context, he is talking about how we ought to live while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So hope connected to eschatology. Look at another verse where Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1, 7 and 8. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. To be revealed in the sense of the Lord is coming. That's one of the words used for the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you'll be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hope connected to eschatology. Hope connected to eschatology. Now hear me please. The New Testament writers don't just connect our hope to, the, to eschatology, which is especially about the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but they want the life of the church and the ethics of the church to be defined by that hope. They want the life of the church and the ethics of the church to be defined by that hope. So our eschatology defines our ethics in the church. Our eschatology defines our life in the church. How vital it is then to have the right eschatology for our church. How vital it is then to have the right eschatology for our church. So it's my burden this morning to discuss with you what we as a church believe is the correct and biblical position on the rapture, which is the pre-tribulational position. The pre-tribulational position, which means that the rapture happens before the tribulation and that the church will not go through the seven-year tribulation period or the 70th week of Daniel, as it is called. <clears throat> we'll talk more about that, but we'll do a few definitions before, before we get there. <coughs> the first thing that I, that I want to define is the word rapture itself. The term rapture, the English word here, the term rapture, despite what many believe, is a biblical term that comes from 1 Thessalonians 4.17. It comes from 1 Thessalonians 4.17, and the Greek text of 1 Thessalonians 4.17 uses the Greek word harpazo. This is the Greek word used in 1 Thessalonians 4.17. That Greek word was translated into Latin as rapturo. I don't know how to pronounce Latin, but let me just say it as rapturo. And from there, you have the English translation, rapture. So the word rapture or the word harpazo is used 14 times in the New Testament. In John chapter 10, verse 12, it is used in the sense of stealing or snatching away something. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 12, it is used in the sense of taking something by force or snatching away something by force. In Acts chapter 8, verse 39, it is used with the idea of being carried away by the Spirit. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it is used in the same sense where the Lord will come in the air and he will snatch away. The church will be caught up. He will snatch the church away or he'll snatch everybody who belongs to him away with him. So there's a snatching away. There's a catching up that is happening. And that is what is known as the rapture. That's the way the word is used in the New Testament. Now, I want to make a distinction between the rapture and the second coming, as we call it. 
Hear me, please, so that we don't misunderstand here. The second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is one single event. The second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is one single event. It's a complex event. It's one single event. But the fact of the matter is, when we look at the New Testament carefully, we see that that one single event is taking place in two phases or two aspects. That one single event is taking place in two phases or two aspects. The first aspect of it is what we just defined now. It is called the rapture. And you see that here. That's the first aspect. It's called the rapture. The first aspect of the second coming called the rapture, which we define now, occurs at the conclusion of the church age or the rapture concludes the church age. It is the event where our Lord Jesus Christ returns from the heavens to the air and the church at that moment will be caught up to him and he will take us away to the father's house. That's the rapture. And then you have the second aspect of the second coming, which is called the second coming or the second advent, as you may call it, where he will return with the church after the tribulation period to establish the millennial kingdom. He will judge the unrighteous, he will vindicate the righteous, and he will establish the millennial kingdom. And between these two events or two aspects of the second coming called the rapture and the second coming, there is a seven-year future period called the tribulation period, where there is a massive outpouring of God's wrath, a cataclysmic outpouring of God's wrath upon all God's enemies. It is detailed for us in the book of Revelation chapter 6 through 19. And for two whole weeks, I'll be standing up here and talking about that. And uh, it'll be in the month of April. And this period is also called the 70th week of Daniel. It's also called the 70th week of Daniel. It lasts seven years, right? So that's one more definition that I wanted to give before we move forward. So there are two aspects to the second coming. One is called, one is called the rapture, and the second one is called the second coming, or you may also call it the second advent. But Ravant, are you reading too much into the text? How do we know that there are two aspects to the second coming? When we look at the nature of the events that happen at the rapture, looking at the rapture passages, and also look at the nature of the events that happen at the second coming, described by the passages of the second coming, we see that there is a difference between these two events. Let me say that again. When we look at the nature of the events that happen at the rapture, and you compare them with the nature of the events that happen at the second coming, we see that there's a difference and distinction between these events. And these differences necessitate that we make a distinction between two aspects of the second coming, the rapture and the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. There are several differences that we could list, but let me just list for you some six differences here on this chart, and we could probably expand on this in our cell groups. At the rapture, number one, at the rapture, Christ will come in the air. He will not return all the way down to the earth at the rapture. He will come in the air. Paul talks about it in 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 16. And, and uh, Sujit, by the way, read that for us. Thank you, Sujit, for the reading, by the way, of the text. But at the second coming, Christ will come all the way down to the earth. And Zechariah 14 says his feet will touch the Mount of Olives. His feet will touch the Mount of Olives. And at least there you see a difference 
that these are two different aspects of the event of the second coming. The second difference, the rapture is a coming for the saints to take them to the father's house. You know, another rapture passage, John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3, right? In my father's house are many dwelling places, and I go to prepare a place for you. So I come to take you to be with me, right? So you have a coming for the saints to take them away to the father's house. But the second coming is a coming with the saints to establish the millennial kingdom. It is to judge the unrighteous. The, the, the wicked nations will be destroyed. And then Israel, uh, the believing nation, will be vindicated. And there will be the establishment of the millennial reign of Christ. Thirdly, the rapture is a mystery revealed to us in the New Testament. You don't find a rapture in the Old Testament. It's a mystery like the gospel. It's a mystery like the church. So the rapture is a mystery. We see that revealed in the New Testament. But the second coming is central to several Old Testament prophecies. In fact, a lot of prophetic books talk about the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, it is elucidated for us, clarified for us in the New Testament. Number four, the rapture is imminent. It could happen any moment. It could happen the next moment as I'm speaking here. I'm not saying it will happen or it would happen. That would be wrong to say that. But it could happen any moment. It is not preceded by any particular signs that are given to us in the New Testament. But when we spoke about the Olivet Discourse, remember a few, few months ago we talked about it. The second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is preceded by several spectacular events. Not the least of which is the abomination of desolation. Right, And then you have several cataclysmic signs in the heavens. And then Jesus says, then you will see the sign of the Son of Man coming. With the carcasses, the vultures will be there, says Jesus. So you don't have any signs for it. It's imminent. And the other one is preceded by several signs that Jesus himself talked about in the Olivet Discourse. Number five, the primary purpose of the rapture is deliverance of the saints from this world. I'll talk a little more about that in the course of the sermon. The primary purpose is deliverance of the saints from this world. First Thessalonians 1.10, we'll get to that. Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. But the primary purpose is the judgment of wicked nations at the second coming. And also the establishment of an earthly kingdom, a thousand year millennial reign of Christ. Sixthly, the rapture fulfills the promise to the church where there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile. The rapture fulfills a promise to the church where there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile. Why? Because it is the promise of the gospel that we will never face the wrath of God. And so we will be taken away before an outpouring of God's wrath. But on the other hand, the second coming is a fulfillment of the promises or the covenants that are given to Israel especially made in the Old Testament. For example, it is a fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Um, Isaiah 11 talks about that, isn't it? Uh, that the whole earth will be transformed. Romans 11 also talks about that. And so, although we do see some common aspects between the rapture and the second coming, there are several differences 
and the events surrounding the rapture are different from the events surrounding the second coming, and, there, and, also, uh, and, and therefore we make a distinction between the two aspects of the one single event called the second coming. So two aspects, one is called the rapture, and the other one is called the second coming or the second advent. These two are separated by, separated by a period called tribulation, which is a seven-year period. Okay. One more definition, and then I'll get to the message on hand. We need to understand this, and this is called the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. It's a common biblical theological theme, especially in the prophetic books in the Old Testament. It is a major unifying theme, especially in the minor prophets. The phrase is found, the exact phrase, the day of the Lord or the day of Yahweh, the exact phrase with those words is found 15 times in the prophetic books. 13 times in the minor prophets. And out of that 13 times, these 13 times are found in 10 different oracles in the minor prophets. So as we have the books in the Bible, when you look at the prophetic books, you, you have the prophetic books starting with the book of Isaiah and ending with the book of Malachi, right? Starts at Isaiah and ends with Malachi. So the concept of the day of the Lord begins in Isaiah chapter 2, and goes all the way till Malachi chapter 4, where the day of the Lord comes like a burning oven. Who can stand it? So it's almost like bookends for the prophets, the prophetic books. Starts at Isaiah chapter 2, goes all the way till Malachi chapter 4. It's called the day of the Lord. Several references could be given, but that's not the point. You all can study it. But the point is, when you survey these texts, the day of the Lord means that it is a climactic outpouring of God's wrath. It is a future outpouring of God's wrath. There's a time that is coming where God is going to pour out his cataclysmic wrath and anger upon all the unbelievers, upon all the enemies of God. In the Bible, there are several images, images that are uh, associated with the day of the Lord, things like natural disasters, things like devastating military conquests and supernatural calamities. All such things are imageries connected to the day of the Lord. So on the one hand, you have a devastation of unbelievers that is happening in the day of the Lord. But on the other hand, you also have it as a blessing for those who believe. So there are two aspects to the day of the Lord. One primarily is that God is going to pour out his wrath upon his, upon, upon his enemies. It is a day of God's visitation. And when God visits, he will destroy his enemies. But on the other hand, it is also a pouring out of divine blessings upon his people, people who have taken refuge in Yahweh. Now, you need to understand the dual nature of it and also understand how it works out in its purposes. This is how it works out. The prophets proclaim that God is angry that God is full of wrath because of your sin, and God is going to visit you on one particular day in the future, and he is going to pour out his wrath upon all his enemies and those who don't believe in him. Now, hear me, please. Those who listen to the message of the prophets and take refuge in Yahweh will be delivered, and that's where the blessing comes from. But for people who see and wait for the day of the Lord to come, it's too late for them. They will be destroyed. So that's what is called the day of the Lord with a dual purpose. The purpose is to talk about the wrath of God that is coming. That will evoke repentance in people. 
And those who repent will find the blessing in the day of the Lord. Others will be destroyed who are the enemies of God. So I would say an accurate presentation of the day of God should have both these things. The aspect of, uh, the aspect of divine uh, blessing and the aspect of divine judgment as well. All right. So these are the definitions I wanted to give before we get to the actual message on hand. All right. Is uh, just, just for us to be on the same page. Is it all clear so far, please, if you don't mind? Yeah. Okay. We'll move forward. We'll talk about the timing of the rapture. And I just want to say that when dealing with the timing of the rapture, when does the rapture actually happen? Theologians especially have come up with five tribulational views, five tribulational views. And all of these are pre-millennial views, which means all of these happen before the millennial kingdom. Okay. The first thing is called pre-tribulational rapture. I'm sorry. One second. Yeah, there are five tribulational views. The first thing is called pre-tribulational rapture. So the pre-tribulation, this is the church age. You have the rapture happening before the tribulation, and that's why you have the word pre-tribulational rapture. And then you have seven years of tribulation. Then the Lord comes with the saints, which is the second coming, to establish the millennial kingdom. So this is why it's called the pre-tribulational rapture, because the rapture happens before pre-tribulation. That's the first view. Then there's a second view of rapture called the mid-tribulational rapture. Uh, there are some still who believe in this, but not. it doesn't have a great following right now. Uh, they believe that the rapture happens right in the middle of tribulation. So the first half of tribulation, the church will go through it, they say. And then in the middle of tribulation, you will have the rapture. Uh, the church will be taken up. And then after three and a half years, it'll come back with the Lord to establish the millennial kingdom. And the word is pretty simple, right? It's mid-tribulational. Why? Because they believe that the rapture happens in the middle of tribulation. The third position is called post-tribulational rapture. The post-tribulational rapture sees the rapture and the second coming as one single event. It sees it as one single event. So here is how it works for them. The church will go through tribulation all seven years and the church will be raptured to meet with the Lord in the air, immediately come back with him to establish the millennial kingdom. You know, some 10, 12 years ago, you know, we, we, in CBF, we had something called Young Adults Bible Study. And I was taking this and I was teaching this to a, a group of uh, young students, you know, they're, they're in school, college and all of that. And, and one small girl asked, what's the fun then? What's the point in going and coming back immediately is, is what she asked. I never answered to that, but anyway, we, uh, that's not what I teach here. So uh, you go and you come back and you establish the millennial kingdom. Uh, by the way, uh, our millennialists and post-millennialists believe something similar to this, but there's a little difference as well, uh, just for information. Then we have something called partial rapture. All right. Look at that. Arrows going up. They believe that the faithful will be taken up regularly and at regular intervals, starting pre-tribulation and going all the way till the end of tribulation period. The faithful will be taken up. 
you know, in, in different amounts is what they believe. This is called the partial rapture. So this is a, this includes all the views, you know, it includes the pre-tribulational view, it includes the post, it includes the mid, and it includes everything else in between as well. Then the last thing uh, is called pre-wrath rapture, which is, it came recently in the 1990s. And uh, they say that Christians will not be removed until 18 months before the end of tribulation. And that's when God's wrath will be poured out. That's the day of the Lord is what they say. Uh, so these are the five positions that we have. Uh, one is pre-tribulational, mid-tribulational, post-tribulational, partial tribulation, uh, partial uh, rapture, and then you have the pre-wrath rapture, five positions. Having given all these positions, I want to give a defense of the pre-tribulational rapture. Now, I don't want to belabor the point here. It could get technical, so I will keep it as simple as possible with just two evidences for the pre-tribulational rapture. And obviously, if it's a promise given to two different churches in the New Testament, it is a promise given to every church in the New Testament and to all the churches from then on as well, right? So I want to talk about something called the Thessalonian eschatology. The Thessalonian eschatology. Now hear me please very carefully. Paul at the beginning of the letter to the Thessalonians, especially 1 Thessalonians, he launches into the longest Thanksgiving section in the entire New Testament. He is excited about this church, so to speak. He is exhilarated about it. He loves the testimony of the church. And then he begins his uh, gratitude by expressing thanks to God about their spiritual maturity. He goes on to talk about their faith. He goes on to talk about their love. He goes on to talk about their hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. He talks about their evangelistic efforts. And he says, even Macedonia and Achaia, everybody is talking about you. You've become the talk of the town. In fact, if you wanted to be a church like a particular church, you would look at the church at Philippi. It was a model church. Everybody wanted to emulate that. Why? What did they do? Because there was a change in their worldview. Paul says, you turn from idols to serve the living God. You turn from idols to serve the living God. So there's a U-turn, it's a 180 degree turn there from idols to the living God. They started serving the living God. They started talking about their faith and not just that. Here is a point that Paul makes. You wait for, your, for the son from heaven, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. I'm not making it up. Chapter 1, verse 10. You wait for the Son from heaven, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. Let me actually read for you verses 9 and 10. Here it is. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, literally from the heavens, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us or, or who delivers us from the coming wrath. Let me make a few significant comments here. Now, listen to me very carefully, please. When you look at the way Paul writes his letters, and this will help us understand how we can look at Pauline epistles, especially. When we look at the way Paul writes his letters, there's one significant observation that we need to make. He begins always the first section of his letters with a smattering of theological themes. 
he gives a few theological themes there in the beginning section of his letter always. And those are not ad hoc ones. Those are not things that he is simply putting there in the beginning section. These are ones he will expand on later in the letter. Always, any, take any of the 13 of Pauline epistles. He would always have in the first section a smattering of theological concepts, which he will expand on later in the epistle. That's how Paul writes it. So if you, in the first paragraph, if you see some few theological themes that you're picking up, you can be sure he will expand on it later on. In chapter 1, verse 10, Paul, look at this, Paul is writing about Jesus who delivers us or rescues us from the wrath to come. Two concepts, two theological concepts here. Number one, Jesus who delivers us. So there's a deliverance by Jesus, a theological concept he's writing about. And then he's also talking about the wrath to come. He's talking about the wrath to come. It's not any wrath that he is talking about. There's a definite article there. It is the wrath to come. Now, when you read the rest of the book of First Thessalonians, he expands on these two theological concepts and themes. Where does he expand on it? Jesus who rescues us or delivers us, he expands in First Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18, where he talks about the rapture, he is talking about Jesus delivering us, rescuing us. And in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, he is talking about the wrath to come. Is that clear? Church, do you want me to repeat that? Is that clear? Right? Okay. So Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come, the first theological theme is expanding in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. The second theological theme, the wrath to come, the wrath, it's a definite article, is expanding in 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11. So the first paragraph, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18, is called the paragraph on the rapture. We just read that. Sujit read that for us. The second paragraph, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, is the paragraph on the day of the Lord the day of the Lord, which is a future period of tribulation. Let me explain the concept here, and then we'll very quickly look at this. The Christians in the church at Thessalonica were grieving over their fellow members who had died. They knew that there's a future resurrection. They knew about the rapture and all of that, but they could not associate these two things. They thought that the people who died in the Lord were going to miss out on the glories associated with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. What will happen to them? Questions surrounded their mind. And therefore, Paul is writing to encourage them. That's why in verse 18, he says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. I have a few observations to make and listen to this very carefully, please. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 to 18, Paul here unravels for us the teaching on the rapture where the church meets with the Lord in the air. And immediately after that, in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 1 through 11, Paul introduces a new topic. Now, how do I know that? In the Greek text, I'm sorry, in the Greek text, Paul uses two words, peri day, peri day. And that is usually translated in English as now concerning or now about these things. You can be sure 
wherever you see in the 13 epistles of Paul, these words in English, these words in English, now concerning or now about these things, he's always changing the topic. He is going to a new topic. Okay, now chapter 5, verse 1, Paul begins with these words, peride, now concerning, which means he's starting a new topic. So in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18, Paul has talked about the rapture. He's finished with the rapture concept. Now concerning, he's talking about the day of the Lord that's coming. It's a different topic. But notice the order here, the theological, the theological order in which Paul is writing it. Is it first the tribulation and then the rapture? No, it's first the rapture and then the tribulation. It's first the rapture and then the tribulation. Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. So Paul did not expect the church at Thessalonica to go through tribulation. By extension, he does not expect any church to go through tribulation. It means the rapture is pre-tribulational. The rapture is pre-tribulational. I hope I've made that clear. The second thing is, we said that the rapture is imminent. If the rapture is pre-tribulational only, can it be imminent? Otherwise, we are waiting for the tribulation before the rapture happens. It cannot be imminent that way. My third observation. In chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, which Sujit read for us, Paul is making a clear distinction between you and they. You and they. You, he is talking to the church at Thessalonica. And they, he is referring to the unbelievers. And look at the distinction he makes, especially in verse 9. He says, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Nobody wants to say amen for this. God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have an appointment to keep, says the verse. It is not with wrath. It is with deliverance. It is with salvation. So in the context, the wrath or the outpouring of wrath comes in a period called the tribulation, which means the church will not go through tribulation. John Walwood, you would have heard of him, a prophecy scholar, he says this. In this passage, Paul is expressly saying that our appointment is to be caught up to be with Christ. And the appointment of the world is for the day of the Lord, the day of wrath. One cannot keep both of these appointments. One cannot keep both of these appointments. So the passage in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18 fits the model only of a pre-tribulational rapture. It is incompatible with any other time of the rapture. So it is very clear that Paul did not expect any church to go through the tribulation period because Jesus rescues us from, from the wrath to come. Jesus rescues us from the wrath to come. My dear brothers and sisters, I want to remind you this. Isn't that the very promise of the gospel? Isn't that the very promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ? That the believer will not face the wrath of God? And there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? So pre-tribulational rapture is consistent 
with the gospel that Paul preached. It is consistent with the gospel that Paul preached. That's the first evidence. I want to move to the second evidence and the last evidence, which is a promise given to the church at Philadelphia. Promise given to the church at Philadelphia. Now, listen to me very carefully, please. In chapter 3 and verse 10, uh, John, writing to the church at Philadelphia, says this, Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming upon the whole world to try or to test those who dwell on the earth. Now, commentators of all stripes, no matter what they believe in, they are very sure about this, that this verse represents the most significant verse regarding the timing of the rapture. This verse is the most significant verse regarding the timing of the rapture, especially in the debate over the rapture. In fact, there was a man by the name of a theologian by the name of Robert Gundry, who's a post-tribulationist. Even he says this, probably the most debated verse in the whole discussion about the time of church's rapture is Revelation 3.10. And that's why I've picked up this verse for us to understand it. Let me show you a few Greek prepositions here. It's very simple. Look at this. The first preposition is the word peri, which means around something. That's from where you get the word perimeter. The other is the word ice, which means into something. The other one is the word dia, which is through, from where you get the word diameter. The last one is the word ek, another preposition, which means out of something or away from something. Out of something or away from something. The Greek preposition used here is the word ek in Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. The word ek is used in Revelation 3 and verse 10. It is the same Greek preposition used in Matthew chapter 7, verse 5, where Jesus says, you hypocrite, take the log out of your own eye first, and then you'll be able to see the speck out of your brother's eye, out of something. And so, by the identical use of prepositions in Revelation 3.10 and Matthew 7.5, the promise here is that the church at Philadelphia will be kept entirely out of the tribulation period, in the same way a log must be kept out of somebody's eye for him to be able to clearly see and take the speck out of another person's eye. And so the idea here is not a sustenance through something or the tribulation, but a complete keeping away from tribulation. The promise is he'll be kept, the, the church will be kept out of tribulation. Ek. Townsend, a scholar, has produced a famous helpful study on this, demonstrating that the preposition ek often denotes total removal from its object. It's a total removal from its object. And he says sufficient evidence uh, exists throughout history that the meaning of the word ek is used to indicate uh, a position outside an object, a position outside an object. This is very consistent throughout uh, the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, in the writings of Josephus, and even in the New Testament as well, that it is talking about a position totally outside of an object. Now look at the verse once again. Now that we gathered that Revelation 3.10 indicates 
that the church will be kept outside something, what will it be kept outside of? Look at the promise here. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. The church will be kept from the hour of trial that is coming upon the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. The hour of trial is a reference to the time period of the coming tribulation. It is a reference to the trial that is coming in the period of tribulation. And the tribulation is not a localized one. It is coming upon the, it's a global one. It's coming upon the whole world. And there's also the idea of imminence. Anytime it could happen. It's coming is what the Greek text says. So this is coming for what is the purpose? It is coming to try those who dwell on the earth. It is to test those who dwell on the earth. The concept of earth dwellers, as used by John in the book of Revelation, especially in chapters 13 and 17, John used the same expression, those who dwell on the earth, to talk about people who worship the beast, who have the mark of the beast, and whose names are not given in the Lamb's book of life. So it is a consistent usage for unbelievers. It is to test and try the unbelievers. The hour of wrath, the hour of tribulation that is coming upon those who are unbelieving, whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life. So look at this. It is not into, it is not through the promise. The promise is out of the tribulation period. So in Revelation 3.10, the church at Philadelphia is promised a complete removal from a specific, well-established time period in scripture called the tribulation period or the 70th week of Daniel. This time period is both global and it is also imminent. It is divinely designed to test all the earth dwellers, unbelievers about their spiritual state. And the church will not go through it because Christ will snatch it away from before the hour begins. Let me just see, since we know that pre-tribulational rapture is what Revelation 3.10 is talking about, it should be consistent with the rest of the book of Revelation as well. It should be consistent with the rest of the book of Revelation as well. So let me show you the structure of the book of Revelation and see how consistent it is. In Revelation 1.19, John is instructed to write concerning three things. Number one, the things which he has seen. Number two, the things which are. And number three, the future things, the things which will take place after these things. The things which are seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. Chapter 1, verse 19 forms a good structure for the entire book, an outline for the entire book. Why? Because in chapter 1, John is seeing the things which are. He is seeing the glorified Christ. In chapter 2, Sorry, things which he has seen, which is the glorified Christ. In chapter 2, he is seeing the things which are, which is chapters 2 and 3, which is the seven churches of Asia. And then from chapters 4 and on are the things that will take place all the way till chapter 22. So it's a good structure for the book of Revelation. Why do I say this here? The reason I say that is because in chapters 2 and 3 especially, and the first, sec first two sections of the book, the word ecclesia, translated church, appears 19 times in the book of Revelation. The word ecclesia appears 19 times in the book of Revelation. 
in the last section of the book, which is the future section of the book, the word does not appear even once. There's only one scant reference in chapter 22, which says, write these things to the church. You know, it's, but that's a very scant reference, but there is no other reference to the church at all in the futuristic sections of the book. Why is that? Because in the future, especially chapters four through 19, it's talking about the tribulation period, the bowls, the trumpets, and the seals, the outpouring of God's wrath, and the church will not go through it. That's the promise that is given to the book of, so to the church at Philadelphia. And that's why our doctrinal statement says this. Now, I've taken it from the website. I just want to read the first portion of it. We believe that in the eschatological program of God, the next great event is the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in the air before the seven-year tribulation period to receive into heaven all who belong to him, both those who are alive at his coming and those who have fallen asleep in him. This event is presented in scripture as a blessed hope for which we should be looking forward. This event is presented in scripture as a blessed hope for which we should be looking forward. So this is the defense of the pre-tribulation rapture that I wanted to give. I have two applications. I, I wanted to expand on this, but I, I don't have time for it. I'll just take five more minutes and I'll finish it, I promise. First of all, application number one. Let's look forward to a grand family reunion with Jesus. Let's look forward to a grand family reunion with Jesus. James chapter 4 verse 14 says, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Moses, the man of God, in Psalm 90 verses 5 and 6, he says this, you sweep them away as a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning, it flourishes and then is renewed. In the, in the evening, it fades away and withers. You know, people say there are two things that are ine inevitable. Number one is death and the other one is taxes. Somehow people try to evade the taxes, but nobody can evade death. George Bernard Shaw put it this way. The statistics on death are very impressive. Every one person out of one dies. Everybody dies. But the question that comes to our minds is, will we see our loved ones again? It's a very important question. Will we see our loved ones again? Deep inside, we have this question. You may have buried a loved one, grandmother, grandfather, son, daughter, wife, husband. And deep inside, this question keeps coming up. Will we see our loved ones again? When we look at the newspapers, there's a news of death all around, especially with a war going on. We don't hear the news of resurrection at all. It's just death. Will we see our loved ones again? I have to sum it up, and that's why I'm cutting it off. Paul says, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And therefore, we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And therefore, we believe God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. If we have to be sure if there is going to be a resurrection, if we have to be sure if our loved ones are going to rise again, we don't look at the dead body, but we look at Jesus who rose again from the dead. It's almost like God saying to us, if I can do that for my son, will I not do that for those who believe in him? 
he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously, freely give us all things? We will see our loved ones again. Those who've died in Christ. You know, the old gospel song puts it this way, on that bright and cloudless morning, when the dead in Christ shall rise, and the glory of his resurrection share, when his chosen one shall gather to their home beyond the skies, when the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. That's our hope. That's our hope. That's God's promise as well. Because Jesus died and rose again, he, we, he will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. And lastly, let's purify ourselves as we look forward to the Lord's return. 1 John 3 verses 1 to 3. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. There are several things that we don't know about heaven, although the Bible does talk so much about it. We would love to know all of it, but I don't think we have the capacity for our, in our minds to understand all of that from this perspective and this point of view. But we do know three things. Number one, that we are God's children. Number two, Jesus will come back. Number three, we will see him again. And when we see him again, we will be like him. Do you believe that? We will be like him. And everyone who has his hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. My dear brothers and sisters, if you don't have this hope and you're listening to the sermon this morning, may I request you and plead with you to come to Jesus and repent of your sins and trust in him. And like we've been saying from the morning, from the opening thought, it is only in Jesus that we have hope. It is only in Jesus that we have salvation. So I want to say to church, as I say this to myself, don't give up. Keep going. There may be disappointments around us, but keep going. And one day we'll find ourselves along with the entire body of Christ at the very throne of God, praising him around it. Thank you so much for your patience. May the Lord bless you all. And thank you once again for your prayers. Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you for reminding us this morning of the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. As we look around, there is the news of dismay and death and wars and rumors of wars and everything else to disappoint us a lot. But when we look to Jesus, we see life, we see hope, and we know that you could come back any moment to snatch us away because we don't belong to the world. We belong to you. What a blessed hope that is a lot. And although there are struggles in this world, both in body and outside, in mind and everything else, a lot, we, we know that one day we'll have glorified bodies because our citizenship is in heaven and we await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the very power that enables him to bring everything under his control is able to transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. Help us to always live with that hope in mind at the fore of our minds, but purifying ourselves because one day we're going to look like you. We want to thank you for this hope and thank you for this time in Jesus' name.